Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath, and let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. All right, welcome back everyone to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. And we are going to just jump in um, because we are gonna continue our conversation with Dr. Omar Minwala and move into a conversation today about gender pathology. Thank you, Omar, for coming on and being willing to talk with us about this. Uh, Glad to be here and glad to continue our uh, education here. So uh, just to orient us in terms of what we're talking about. So remember, really all of these conversations and podcasts that we've done up until now have really been trying to articulate this umbrella term or diagnosis um, that we're calling compulsive abusive sexual relational disorders. And again, uh, just to remind people, this is being described as a two-part problem, right? There's two pathological systems. Part one is the problem sexual behavior. This would meet uh, the criteria for our traditional understanding of sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior. Um, And then the second part of the problem that we've been talking about is what we have referred to as the integrity abuse disorder, which are the deficits in integrity and the patterns of emotional, psychological, and relational abuse in violation of the intimate partner and the family system. And we talked about patterns such as gaslighting and chronic patterns of lying, denials, cover-ups, blaming the victim, manipulating the truth and reality. And then we also talked last time about the DCSR, which stands for deceptive compartmentalized sexual or relational reality. And we use the metaphor of a secret sexual basement built under the family home as a metaphor for understanding DCSR and how that too is part of our concept of the integrity abuse disorder is having building and creating and maintaining a secret sexual basement under the family home. And so I won't repeat that information. I think that's spelled out in the last podcast. And Omar, I just want to say that that was so incredibly helpful to Dwayne and I. We actually used that metaphor of the secret sexual basement with our last workshop participants, and it was very, very helpful. And everybody, partner and addict alike, felt like it really resonated and made a lot of sense. So I I really appreciated that kind of visual representation of what the whole deception, the deceptive and compartmentalized piece looks like. Great. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, important aspect of understanding integrity abuse disorders, that we do have these patterns of harm, which are emotional and psychological, like gaslighting or blaming or manipulating the truth or being defensive or angry or intimidating or chronic denials. But then we have just the existence of a secret sexual basement under the family home. And just having that in and of itself, regardless of the types of behaviors in there, the, the creation of that and the maintenance of that is also part of our understanding of what it means to have an integrity abuse disorder in this context. So I'm glad that you guys find that helpful and I hope that other people do too. So the second point um, that I want to start to make here is we have these two parts of this problem called compulsive abusive sexual relational disorders. And what I want to talk about today is one of the underlying factors 
And what I mean by underlying factor is if we use another metaphor um, of an iceberg and above the water level, you have psychological or clinical problems or symptoms that can emerge. One of those would be compulsive, abusive, sexual, relational disorders with these two parts. And then an underlying factor would be in this metaphor of an iceberg below the water level, that there might be issues underneath uh, that we can't see that are, are maybe harder to see that are contributing to what's emerging above the waterline. So in this metaphor, we have this symptom above the water called compulsive abusive sexual relational disorder. And what I wanna talk about today is what is one of the underlying contributing factors underneath the water here, if that makes sense. Great. And so a few things that we need to kind of cover before we can kind of get to that topic. And the first thing is we need to understand a little bit about complex trauma because I think most people have heard of PTSD and when they think of underlying trauma, they often think of PTSD, which is often a single event, such as, for example, a diving accident. And, you know, the classic symptoms of PTSD are hypervigilance, constriction, and hyperarousal, and intrusions, things like flashbacks, nightmares. Complex trauma is different. It's not PTSD. Complex trauma is the result of repeated patterns of harm with a consistent theme over time, and usually where the victim lacks a viable escape route. You know, So the classic studies of complex trauma were done by Judith Herman, um, and she studied prisoners of war. So prisoners of war often are people, victims of torture are being um, repeatedly harmed over time and they can't escape. So that's the classic original studies of complex trauma were of people who are being tortured over time and they can't escape. And so she really studied what happens to a person when they experience that. Now, I talk about complex trauma in matter of degrees and severity. So obviously, many of us are never going to experience that kind of extreme torture. But childhood and adolescent development is also a condition where the human being can't easily escape and where the human being might be subjected to patterns of harm over time. So if we broaden our concept of complex trauma, uh, and I use the term complex trauma shaping, any kind of harm that's happening to a child over and over again where they can't escape is potentially a type of complex trauma shaping. It's shaping a person. And if I can share just a little more about that, the six symptoms of complex trauma, what happens to a person over time when they're dealing with patterns of harm is there's alterations in how they learn to deal with emotions. So that's one of the main symptoms of complex trauma is it changes the way a human being learns how to deal with emotions. The second symptom is it, these patterns of harm over time really change a person's thought system. And that includes how aware they are of what's going on with them, their ability to self-reflect, the emergence of a lot of distorted thinking as a way to protect themselves. So there's a lot of impact on a person's thought system. There's also these repeated forms of harm over time can really impact a person's self-perception. This would include things like core beliefs about the self and self-esteem. Uh, these repeated forms of harm over time are also going to impact how the person responds and perceives the abuse and how they relate to the perpetrator or the abuser, especially if they're dependent on them, such as parents. Complex trauma is also gonna impact how a person learns to relate to human beings in general, and it's gonna impact how they see life, what their motivations in life and values are, and it impacts their systems of meaning. So those are the six general ways that a person is impacted 
in terms of complex trauma. And, and Omar, can you just maybe give an example when you talk about systems of meaning so that people out there can put that into some kind of a context that they could relate to? Um, these would just be kind of in a more global sense, how you see yourself in the world. What are your beliefs about the world? You know, some people believe the world is full of goodness, that when you need help, that sometimes life helps you out. People who experience a lot of complex trauma might have a much darker view of the world and their place in it. It might not be, it might be very negative. It might, they might see the world as a place that's harmful that you need to protect yourself from. So that would be kind of a quick example of how somebody's systems of meaning might be impacted. Another example might be that through complex trauma, somebody ends up seeing the world in very transactional terms and looks at human life in very dehumanized ways where everything's about numbers. So that would be another example of how somebody's systems of meaning shapes their kind of view of life and what motivates them and how they think and feel about life and their place in it. Thank you. That's very helpful. So again, the definition is there's patterns of harm, often during development, where the child can't escape. And so they're subjected to these patterns of harm over time. And that's going to impact these six systems, emotional systems, thought systems, self-perception, how they relate to abuse or the abuser, how they relate to human beings and how they see life. And the way I like to describe this, these patterns of harm are like drops of water on a rock. So if somebody's called stupid once, that's probably not gonna be that impactful. But if a child is called stupid every day at school for years, let's say 10 years, that's gonna be very impactful and is gonna shape that person in these six fundamental ways over time. Mm -hmm. So these patterns of harm are like drops of water on a rock and they will shape that rock over time. And so that's why complex trauma is actually very, very relevant and very, very meaningful in terms of understanding how it impacts a person and how those impacts are going to carry on into adulthood. And specifically, the shape of the rock over time, because of these drops of water that are shaping this rock, that's actually going to contribute to a person's personality structure. So it's important to understand that complex trauma is actually one of the fundamental agents or processes that shape a person's personality. And then a person's personality, it's like their modus operandi, is actually defined as a person's habitual methods of feeling, thinking, behaving, and relating to others. So I'll repeat that, but a person's personality is often defined as a person's habitual methods of feeling, thinking, behaving, and relating to others. So that's why it's so important and relevant because uh, complex trauma is actually one of the contributing factors to the human being's personality and a human being's personality is going to explain a lot of how they show up in the world and how they think, how they behave, how they feel, and how they relate to others. And when we use the term personality disorder, what we're really saying there is there are sometimes maladaptive methods of thinking, feeling, behaving, and relating to human beings. And so that we call those maladaptive methods personality disorders. I would make one comment. I think that this gets missed a lot for a lot of people because if they've been exposed to this slow drip of trauma, they're so used to it that often they don't even recognize that they've experienced it. Exactly. And that's why I started by saying we know more about PTSD, single events. So even when people are looking at underlying factors and what might be going on, they're often sometimes looking at PTSD events. What we often don't look at as much into is 
this idea of complex trauma. And in my model, the assumption is everybody has uh, experienced some kind of at least complex trauma shaping because all of us as children have been subjected to forms of harm that we couldn't escape and that repeated over time. And so those are gonna have an influence on us. Those are like our drops of water on our rock. And then our rock is our personality. And we all have a personality that's been shaped by these patterns in this way. And it's something that, you know, this is kind of taking complex trauma, expanding it, using the same principles to understand how it shapes a person, and then broadening our understanding to see how we all have some form of complex trauma shaping that's uh, been influential in determining some of the characteristics of our personality. But it is something that we don't yes, learn enough. We don't learn a lot about. Even psychologists aren't necessarily taught a lot about complex trauma. We're taught more about PTSD, and complex trauma isn't really a diagnosis or term that's in the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. So there's a lot more. Um, to understand and, and to be understood around complex trauma versus PTSD, so. I think uh, um, complex trauma, something that I've seen um, since I've been practicing is that that term actually gives people who haven't uh, related to having trauma prior more of an understanding of how they could have a trauma history. You know, because I do think the term PTSD is so widely understood and accepted in society and people associate it with this, you know, one big event that happens. And so often if, you know, I remember I used to talk to clients um, and ask about trauma and they adamantly d denied any kind of big, you know, big trauma. And then I'd, I'd start to do more of an assessment of their history. And what would emerge was a lot of this sort of ongoing patterns of abuse over time and exposure to with you know verbal abuse let's say and you know demeaning comments and painful comments and abusive comments made you know over the course of their life but that they never that was normal to them and they never really understood that as being complex trauma so i i love the distinguish the uh, distinguishing those two yeah and with complex trauma uh, it's important to state it doesn't have to be extreme harm in fact most of the time it's not in, in fact, most of the time, they seem like very everyday dynamics that we all are exposed to and that we see a lot. So a critical parent, you know, just criticism over many years can shape a person. Poverty can be a type of complex trauma. Racism can be a type of complex trauma. Being self-conscious about an aspect of your body for years can be complex trauma. Being shamed for many years or put down or diminished or, you know, physical abuse for many years, you know, sexual abuse for many years. So there's a lot of variations and types and uh, degrees of complex trauma, but it doesn't have to be severe. In fact, like I said, these subtle patterns of harm are extremely influential in shaping a person. Absolutely. All right, so now that we have at least a little understanding of this idea of complex trauma and complex trauma shaping, uh, I'd like to talk about complex trauma to our gender. And so this is the specific underlying factor that I really wanted to spend some time talking about. So I want to talk about one type of specific complex trauma, and it's complex trauma to our gender. And this is the actual underlying factor that I wanted to spend some time discussing. Now, right off the bat, I think we have to talk about trauma to our gender, especially complex trauma to our gender, is not something that a lot of people even think about. In fact, one of the wounds to our gender and our gender development is that we don't talk about gender development. We as children are not taught a lot of healthy things about gender development, the stages of gender development, how to transition from immature psychology to mature psychology. What does it mean 
to transition from boy psychology to adult masculinity, for example. It's just not something that we're very conscious about. So a lot of our gender wounds, especially our complex trauma to our gender, is probably something that people are hearing about for the first time here. And that's pretty normal because this is a very unconscious, underdeveloped area of understanding of how our gender is actually experienced, uh, experiencing a type of complex trauma. I think on some level, it's a bit of a missing piece, as you're saying, because I mean, for me, certainly I didn't focus on the gender pathology piece until um, pretty recently, since you and I started talking more and we started doing these podcasts. And it's really, for me, it felt like a missing piece. And it, as I started to um, integrate it into my work with clients, and as Dwayne and I have used it more in our workshops, it clearly fits. And it really does... It, it just, it feels like that's just what's been missing and now we have it. And so I'm wondering if, I know you're going to get there, but perhaps we can just start with a, a simple understanding of what do you mean by gender pathology in the context of betrayal trauma? Yeah, so I think I'm going to get to that. But for right now, I'll just say these patterns of harm to our gender, that's the trauma piece. Mm -hmm. And then the result of that trauma is what we're calling gender pathology. And gender pathology, in terms of defining that, would be gender pathology refers to those unhealthy ways we think, feel, and act, and relate to others based on our gender or our gender identity. So because of all these patterns of harm to our gender, the result of that is going to be gender pathology, unhealthy ways of thinking, feeling, acting, and relating based on gender. When we talk about trauma to our gender, everybody has their personal wounds, and we all have a lot of personal wounds, usually around gender. But what I want to focus on is uh, the societal piece, the way that we're socialized around gender, and a lot of the social scripts that we are subjected to. And then also how society not only has all of these ideas and beliefs and structures that they're trying to mold us into in terms of gender, but that there's an extreme pressure to conform to these scripts. And non-conforming to these scripts often results in persecution or the threat of persecution. So we take these societal scripts and what society does is we bombard, you know, the human being with all these ideas of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. And the pressure to conform to these scripts is enormous. And so that's what we're calling complex trauma to our gender is these patterns of harmful messages that are shaping somebody's gender. So let me explain this a little bit because I know it's maybe a little bit um, difficult to really understand. So one of the ways, for example, um, and I'm going to talk about males and boys because a lot of my model, and this applies to any human being, but I'm specifically looking at masculinity here in this example, in this discussion. One way that society impacts male development is we teach boys, you know, not to feel or show vulnerability, not to show fear, not to cry, not to show weakness. Essentially what we're doing is we're teaching male boys not to have emotions. And we know psychologically that being able to regulate emotions in a healthy way is one of the most important psychological functions that we have. And a lot of mental health and psychological problems and disorders are because people can't effectively regulate emotions. They can't deal with emotions and haven't learned to deal with emotions in a healthy way. And a lot of that comes from our history and our personal wounds. But when we look at the role that society plays 
society actually takes all um, human beings that they designate as male and then really bombard them with these messages of uh, doing the exact opposite of what we know is healthy. So instead of teaching boys how to deal with emotions in a healthy way and how to experience all of emotions and metabolize them in a healthy way, we actually do the exact opposite and rewire the emotional system away from healthy emotional regulation. And so we're one of the symptoms of uh, this type of shaping over time is that the result is that you have adult men who are highly deficient in emotional regulation, the symptoms of gender pathology. So just to kind of put the terms into this, this repeated messaging of you're not allowed to feel, don't cry, stuff your emotions, it's weak to show emotions, all of those messaging over time, boys can't escape that. There's no way they can escape that. So now we're starting to meet that criteria of these are harmful messages that the human being subjected to and there is no escape route. And they're gonna be subjected to these messages for pretty much since birth up until the present. And so that's definitely gonna shape a person. And so we have one clear example when we know how important it is to deal with emotions in a healthy way and how important emotional regulation is. And then you have society literally rewiring and teaching and training boys to do the exact opposite. And then they have huge emotional regulation problems as adults. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about American male loneliness. And uh, they were talking about to a researcher who was basically saying that when he was looking at, at boy, young boys, right, he would, would talk to them about how they would talk about their friends. And it was very loving and connected and emotional. And then as he interviewed boys later in age, especially around like 10, 11, 12, that language disappeared and really showed how they became very disconnected from others. And it created this inability. If you can't be emotional, you can't connect. And so men were left to be very alone in that. And I think that's also an example of this consequence of this, you know, uh, male gender pathology in, in our society. It leaves men definitely leaves us alone. Yes, Dwayne, you, you got it. That's, that's a perfect illustration, a beautiful, beautiful example of research showing how our organic nature, right? These boys were, you know, naturally talking in very emotional, tender, you know, right. full ways. And then as they're being socialized over time, all of a sudden that's bled out of them. And now yeah. they're much more emotionless less willing just, to put their emotions out there i am i have a young son at home he's only 20 months and i ever since we've been he was starting to talk about and really look at this gender pathology and also look at some of the videos that are out there i notice with my own son this i see this all the time i see that he's born with a tremendous amount of, of emotion and um sweetness you know, and dependency, and just a lot of the qualities that I think um, starting pretty young are socialized into men that that's, you know, that's not okay, that's not good, we gotta, we gotta repress this, or we gotta get rid of this. And it's quite sad. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's a very severe type of trauma, and really distorting the human being's natural emotional system and rewiring it to something highly unhealthy and problematic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another part of complex trauma to our gender is teaching boys how to think. So we just talked about emotions and how not to feel. Society does uh, a lot of um, scripts are about how to define masculinity and how to think in terms of being a man. And so 
this complex trauma uh, is shaping the human being's way of thinking or their thought system, their cognitive system, if you will. And some of these scripts have to do with teaching boys that the real goal of masculinity is to is the acquisition of power. So it's about always being one up. If you want to feel okay as a man, then your goal is to conquer men or conquer women as a way to gain masculine esteem or worth. Being one up gives you masculine credibility and affirmation. There's a lot of belief systems around anything feminine is less than or inferior, that females are property and objects, often sexual objects, belief systems that as a man, you should always want to be sexual. And that's part of the definition of masculinity. So there's a lot of belief systems that are part of this shaping. And one of the outcomes in terms of gender pathology is the psychology of sexual entitlement. And I define that as the prioritizing of personal sexual experience or gratification over the human rights of others. So when we prioritize getting sexual needs met or having sexual experiences, prioritize that over the basic human rights of other people, then that's a problematic uh, psychology. And that's what I refer to as sexual entitlement. And so where does that come from? It comes directly from society, society's messaging and what they're teaching boys and they're teaching boys how to think. And one of the unhealthy ways of thinking that results is this psychology of sexual entitlement. The other thing is we've talked about emotions, how to feel or not feel. We talked about thoughts and impacting the cognitive system. And then this complex trauma to our gender from society also impacts how boys are taught to behave and what's acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior. And part of the unhealthy scripting that society puts out is that boys are taught that demonstrating power and control is the way to behave. That's often done through aggression or dominance, and that's seen as part of the definition of masculinity. There's a lack of teaching or encouraging boys or teenage boys how to control their sexual behavior, and instead a promotion of having and getting as much sex as you can, and that's partly breeding that sexually entitled behavior. And boys are often taught, do not act in any way that is deemed feminine. Otherwise, you're subjected to persecution. So a lot of the ways that boys are trained to even behave is socially scripted. And then the symptom of that, we see a lot of behaviors that result from that domination, acquiring power without regard to the human rights of others, violence, aggression, intimidation, exploitation. When we talk about sexual entitlement, a lot of that is going to be a contributing factor to sexual offenses like sexual assault or rape or molestation, harassment, abuse of power in the workplace. All of these things are partly a result of sexual entitlement and that particular type of psychology. And where does that come from? That comes from society most of the time as a big part of what actually creates that. And, you know, I don't know where this would go, but I was just, you know, in terms of the order of discussing things, but I was just thinking about social media and the role that that plays in perpetuating what we're already talking about, which is, you know, the collective socialization of men or of gender. Um, do, do you know what I mean when I say that? Absolutely. I think that these types of messages that human beings are subjected to are literally everywhere. We are swimming in an ocean full of these gender scripts and messages, whether it's on TV, social media, 
talking to the person next to you and just observing the world. So much of the world has conformed to these gender scripts and, and we're all pressured to uh, conform to them. So they're really everywhere. It's, it's, it would be impossible to not be subjected to these dynamics. And I, I agree. And I want to make the point that I, I think it's so much now embedded in our, in our society and, and everywhere that we, we look and everywhere we turn that I would say many, many people, probably the majority of people are not aware of it. So I really want to make that distinction because as people are listening to this, I, I want to make it clear that this is not something that we're saying is an intended behavior, a conscious choice. We're actually talking about how this is um, sort of put upon us. Yeah, absolutely. These are, like we said, this is a whole topic that is relatively uh, unconscious for most people, right? We've never really thought about our gender being traumatized. And we often don't think of our gender being traumatized in terms of complex trauma shaping. And yet we see all of the results in terms of gender pathology where men can't metabolize emotions, they have very distorted views and beliefs, their behavior is violent or aggressive or dominating and problematic. And then the last part that we, I haven't talked to about yet is just, it really impacts how the human being's going to relate to others. So this gender shaping is going to really impact how boys are taught to be intimate. And really what they're taught is not to be intimate and how to not relate to human beings. A lot of the scripts are, you need to be one up over the next human being to feel okay as a man. Your job is to acquire external power Dominating and winning is the goal, uh, whether it's dominating other men or sexually conquering women. We teach boys to impress each other with their conquests and to gain esteem and admiration from their masculine peers. You often see this idea of the trophy wife or the trophy girlfriend as a way to prop up masculine self-esteem and objectify women in that way. Men learn to relate through these masculinity scripts, and we see that in sports culture and business culture and military culture. And intimacy itself is feminized and thus is often avoided and degraded. And so boys are shaped and, and they learn not to relate to human beings in healthy ways. Um, they, they learn to relate through domination or a lack of relatability, you know, being stoic and non-feeling is not going to make you very relatable. And when intimacy itself is feminized, then things like love is also feminized. And so this is extremely harmful. And, and one of the symptoms of and the outcomes of this in terms of gender pathology is an intimacy disorder and a real inadequacy in how to even love another human being. Yeah. I, I can't help but wonder, as I'm listening to all of this, if how much of this has impacted our current divorce rate, which last I heard was over 60%, at least in the United States, you know, unconsciously impacting. It's an absolute factor. If you have, I mean, in summary here, what I've just tried to start articulating is we have all of these harmful pressurized messaging of boys. And then we have the result where there's a lack of emotional regulation. There's all these distorted thoughts and sexual entitlement. They behave in aggressive and dominating and abusive ways, and they don't know how to attach or relate to human beings in an intimate way or in a healthy way. And so those factors are going to make intimacy, marriages, being a family member, very, very, very difficult. I mean, what I hear you saying, to, to sum it up in, in the way it appears in, in my mind, is that you have this socialization of men 
that creates all this over time because it's constant, it's everywhere, it's consistent. Uh, if you have too much emotion, you're shamed. If you're too close to your male friend, you might be considered gay. Um, and that's shameful in our society and things like that, which kind of drives men to isolate and be alone. And that that is that uh, slow dripping trauma. And that slowly shapes somebody in a way that uh, leads to isolation, loneliness, and an inability to connect. Yes. And it leads very much to compulsive, abusive, sexual, relational disorders. So that's the piece I really want to drive home here. So going back to our definition, we have a two-part problem. The first part of the problem we've been talking about is the problematic sexual behavior, the sexual acting out. Now, when we look at the traditional models, clinical models and our clinical understanding of compulsive sexual behavior or the sex addiction model, one criteria for that diagnosis is continued sexual behavior despite significant negative consequences. So one criteria that is part of how we define compulsive sexual behavior or sex addiction is when we see this repeated sexual behavior and despite negative consequences, the person keeps engaging it. And so that's why we've come up with the idea of an addiction or the word compulsivity. The word compulsivity usually means a lack of control or an inability to control. And all of that is legitimate. There are people who struggle with the ability to control their behavior. And the reason they keep engaging it is they have a problem, uh, a lack of ability to control, or they do have compulsivity or impulse control issues. However, there is another reason that people can continue to engage in sexual behavior despite negative consequences besides a lack of ability to control or compulsivity. And that would be sexual entitlement. What I mean by that is it's not that the person can't control. It just means the person doesn't want to stop the behavior and that there's a lack of desire or motivation or a lack of investment in trying to control the sexual behavior. So that's a different issue. Well, don't you think though that it's less that they don't want to stop and more that they truly believe that they shouldn't have to stop? Exactly. They're both, um, what we're talking about is that psychology of sexual entitlement. And Mm -hmm. if that's what's driving the behavior, then it's not really an impulse control disorder or a brain disease or an addiction. It's actually a psychology of sexual entitlement, which comes from the gender piece that we just talked about. And that might be a reason why, despite negative consequences, despite being caught, you still see the person engaging in the same type of problematic sexual behavior over and over again. And it's not that they're really trying to stop and they can't and they're having a problem that we might consider compulsive or impulse control or an addiction. It's actually a psychology of, I don't want to stop and I don't feel invested in, in doing so and I'm not going to, which is a different reason that, that that's a different driver for, or a different explanation for repetitive behavior other than an addiction. So that's, I think, very, very important because as of yet, there's not a lot of talk or explanation around sexual entitlement as being another contributing factor to these problems. Everyone assumes if it's repeating despite negative consequences, oh, it must be a lack of control problem rather than maybe I don't want a control problem. I have a question about that as well. Can they overlap each other and influence each other? You know, someone who has a compulsivity issue with complex trauma, this entitlement can also feed the denial about the compulsivity and back and forth. That was my thinking when you were talking about it. 
I was just going to say, oh. often it can be both. It can be in, impulse control or compulsivity issue, and there can be a healthy dose of sexual entitlement involved as well. And so often it's a hybrid of both of those factors. And that's why I actually use the term in my model for this first part of the problem around sex as compulsive entitled sexuality. So the acronym for that would be CES, compulsive hyphen entitled sexuality. And what I'm trying to do there is just acknowledge this can be compulsive sexual behavior. This can also be entitled sexual behavior. And for a lot of people, it's a combination or hybrid of both compulsivity and sexual entitlement that's driving the problematic sexual behavior. So the term compulsive entitled sexuality, I think, is much more fitting because it acknowledges both of those drivers as part of the problem, not just compulsivity or addiction or impulse control, leaving out the acknowledgement of sexual entitled behavior. I, I think this is so important because just giving it this label, I think for an addict is helpful because, you know, keeping it, them in the dark and not speaking to it is not going to help them change this behavior. That's the first thing. But the second thing is I imagine for the partner hearing this, this label and really naming the entitlement piece, this compulsive entitled sexuality would be incredibly validating for them. Because again, so often in the case of betrayal, the focus is so much on the sexual behavior. And I think what a partner is sitting with is such an enormous amount of pain that comes from so much more than the acting out behaviors, which I think is, is probably one of the overlying factors that the three of us have been trying to uh, get across in the course of these three episodes that we've been recording. Absolutely. And... Also, I have a lot of patients who, um, in earnest, really struggle with the term addiction, and they don't really identify with uh, having had a lack of control or an inability to control. And when you introduce sexual entitlement as a possibility, oftentimes they will resonate with that much more. And what I'm saying is there are some patients who really admit that a lot of their problematic behavior was more out of sexual entitlement rather than an inability to control themselves. And they will admit they weren't really invested and they felt entitled to that behavior. There's other patients who very much identify with the compulsivity part or the addiction part where they really in earnest have been very invested in trying to stop and have not been able to or, or periodically fail in that. And then there's many, many patients who identify with both and they see it as a hybrid. I think, I, I think that would apply to my clients as well. So the other part of compulsive entitled sexuality that I think is relevant to gender is in terms of the compulsivity part or the need to medicate Often in a lot of my patients, the acting out behavior is actually a way of regulating gender esteem specifically or masculine esteem. And I use the metaphor of a balloon. So many of my patients have a lot of wounds around masculinity. And so there's a lot of feeling inadequate inferior, emasculated, humiliated, and a desperate need for gender affirmation. And one of the organic ways that human beings affirm their gender is through sexuality. And so a lot of acting out is actually a way of temporarily inflating masculine self-esteem and then when the acting out is done, they drop back down to the wounded, uh, you know, the inadequacy, the inferiority and all of their gender wounds. And so a lot of times 
one important factor to consider is a lot of sexual acting out and even the compulsivity or the medicating aspect of that is related to actually regulating and addressing gender wounds. And the acting out is a way of um, temporarily inflating masculine self-esteem. So if somebody's getting attention from a stripper or attention from somebody and they're affirming their looks or their body or their masculinity, that's kind of the affirmation that a lot of acting out is actually seeking, if you will. So if we use this metaphor of a balloon, part of understanding compulsive entitled sexuality can be that a person is actually regulating their gender esteem. Totally. I, I see that a lot in uh, my clients that I work with who are struggling with out of control sexual behavior. A lot of times it's not actually the sex itself that they are attracted to. It's this uh, esteeming that they might get from a, uh, a prostitute or someone on the other side saying, I want you, or I need you, or you're, you're a man, basically. That's the key that they want more than the actual sexual behavior. Exactly, Dwayne. That's exactly what I'm uh, talking about. And that's why when sometimes people say, well, why couldn't they turn to drugs or alcohol? Drugs or alcohol are not going to affirm your gender. Exactly. Um, now, sexuality... There's a natural affirmation of our gender through sexuality, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, part of the complex trauma to our gender from society is actually teaching boys and males that if they feel inadequate, one way to feel better about yourself is to seek out attention or sexualized attention or experiences. And beyond the uh, natural aspects of that, there's also a teaching boys that to objectify and to conquer. And that's where you see, you know, notches on the bedpost becoming a script, right? If you don't feel good about your masculinity, then start, you know, notches on the bedpost would be an example of one of those unhealthy scripts of how to attain masculine self-esteem. And then I think on the flip side, there's um, there's this feeling for, for girls often that in order for them to obtain self-esteem, it's it's how how much are they going to, how, how can they get boys to like them? And it's often using sexual behavior. I remember a couple of years ago, help me out you guys if you know what I'm talking about, but there was something about in like in the high schools where uh, students were using different colored bracelets and accumulating them um, each time they gave oral sex to a boy. Um, and this was something that was not specific to a particular high school. This was something that I saw it all over social media and that seemed to be um, kind of an accepted or normalized thing that was going on in the high schools. I remember I felt really, um, I, I felt sick when I saw it. Yeah. So we, I've been talking a lot about, you know, the socialization of boys there's an absolute parallel type of gender trauma to girls and the messages they're subjected to and how that shapes them and how they end up with their own form of gender pathology. So very much so, um, these gender scripts are harmful to all of us because they're forcing us and shaping us in really unhealthy ways, whether we're male or female. Yeah, when we were talking about this at a at a workshop, uh, a recent workshop, one of the participants asked, well, is there a female socialization or a collective socialization of females? And we said, absolutely. Um, it just, in terms of this workshop, it makes more sense to focus on the impact on men. But yeah, I think that it's 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 equally as important and equally as heartbreaking and destructive. Exactly. So that's the first part of our problem, right? Compulsive entitled sexuality. And we just talked about how relevant the gender piece and gender trauma and gender pathology is to compulsive entitled sexuality. We also have the other part of our problem, which is integrity abuse disorder. 
right? And part of that is having a deceptive compartmentalized sexual or relational reality while in an intimate partnership or in a family system. And that's where we have the metaphor of the secret sexual basement and how common that is. And we ask the question, how could that be so common? And how come it's difficult to even see that as abusive? And part of the answer is men are socialized to feel entitled to have a DCSR. And men collude with each other in having a DCSR. And there's many social scripts that foster the idea and the normalization of having a secret sexual basement. Mm -hmm. Boys are not, we do not grow up with the idea that having a secret sexual life from your family or from your wife is abuse or domestic abuse. That's a head scratcher still. Right. And why is that a head scratcher? Because of this, the way that we have trained people to think about gender and the way that we have trained people to think about men and male sexuality and everyone has bought into the normalization of that. And so it's very difficult when we talk about these secret sexual basements to immediately understand that as a form of abuse and an integrity issue. And there's a lot of, you see this in, in, in you know, a lot of men know that other men have secret sexual basements and are violating their children and family and their wives. And there's a lot of condoning that, colluding with that, covering up for each other, Businessmen go on, you know, acting out, they go act out together and they all know that they're married with kids and they support that. It's part of the culture. So there's a lot of male entitlement and a lot of normalization of having a DCSR. And so that's how the gender piece really connects and is highly relevant to understanding that second piece of the disorder, which is the integrity abuse disorder. And there's even men and people who otherwise seem to have integrity in other areas of their life. And then you see a real lack of integrity when it comes to having a secret sexual basement because it's so normalized that otherwise people who have integrity in most of their life, you'll see there's an exception where for some reason they get a pass and they're able to have a secret sexual basement and not even think of it as abuse. That's how normalized it's become. And then remember in some of the earlier discussions we've had, we've even asked ourselves, why is it so hard for the field and clinicians to see this as abuse or why is it so hard to even understand this term integrity abuse disorder and i think it's partly because of what we're talking about today which is we've normalized this almost to the point where a lot of people believe this is just biologically driven male behavior and that's just how men are versus no this is actually taught and we're socialized and trained to normalize this type of abuse when you were you were talking about that i was thinking of the the common adage that's thrown out there well that's just locker that's just guys locker room talk you know it's just like that's normal for men to do that it's just locker room talk exactly and boy if you try to cha uh, challenge it it's very, very difficult to try to challenge it. And again, I would say that it's totally true <laughs> that, 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 that boys are not born that way. Because as I said earlier, I look at my son every single day at 20 months and he is born the opposite. He's born as an incredibly emotional, you know, sensitive child. 
you know, he, he, it's, and I pray that, <laughs> that somehow he doesn't get socialized into that other way of thinking because this is, you know, th these are beautiful traits. Absolutely. And that's, that's the essence of the trauma is you're taking a beautiful, full human being with a range of potentials and through this gender scripting process over time, really gutting out much of that potential and rendering the person with severe deficits, including being able to create a secret sexual basement and not blink. So is, is it crazy for me to ask if there's a positive message in all of this? Yes. I mean, no, it's not crazy. <laughs> but the positive uh, aspect of this is bringing this to light and, and, and starting to talk about it and starting to see it and starting to recognize like, wow, our, our, we're, we've been traumatized in terms of just how society has trained us to view, see, and experience gender and how we've all been shaped into these scripted gender roles and how unhealthy a lot of the messaging is and how much it hurts us and how much as adults you see people suffering because of these gender scripts that have now impacted and shaped us. And there's a ton of, of freedom in knowing this so that you can step out of it and you can have, as a man, have real emotional relationships with other men that are meaningful and filled with depth and are supportive. There's a freedom in it. Exactly. And it actually starts to give us a template of what needs to change. So, you know, to, to help masculinity to include being emotional and to have healthy emotional regulation, you know, to define masculinity, not in terms of always having to be one up or the acquisition of power, right? Confront the idea of sexual entitlement and teach boys, no, you're not entitled to get your sexual needs met if it violates the human rights of others. No, having a secret sexual life on the side is not, is not cool, it's actually a form of domestic abuse. It gives us an opportunity to start chipping away and changing how society shapes human beings in terms of their gender and gender identity. And you're going to have a richer life not doing that, not relating that way. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's going to take, uh, it's going to create a much, much more whole person, a much more fulfilled person and allow those human potentials in that person to really have a chance to, uh, come to life and thrive. Looking at male relationships in the context that we've been talking about really makes it obvious why it would make sense that so many of our male clients that come into our offices for healing from sexual betrayal, sexual addiction, sexual compulsivity, actually report that one of the best things they get out of it, although at the beginning they certainly don't anticipate that, is these incredible relationships with other men in the 12-step program rooms and also in men's groups. You know, that's why I think oftentimes, you know, we can't recommend enough for men who come into, uh, into treatment to work on developing those intimacy skills, not just with their, their partner, but with other men and with other people. Exactly. Wow, Omar, I just want to thank you for coming on and and sharing this information. Um, it's amazing. And uh, I think it's going to be helpful to so many people out there. Yeah. And I, I know just for everybody, it, it, this takes a while to metabolize and slowly understand and it, it builds over time. So I hope that this is just an opening of some ideas and concepts that they do take time to sort of start understanding on a deeper level. And so I hope that I at least put out some building blocks that do make sense. Cause I know it's a little bit at times uh, maybe hard to understand at first because it's such a topic that we really, really do not talk a lot about. And it's, it, it is sitting in the dark a lot, this whole gender pathology piece. 
my hope is that as people hear this and listen to it, they'll start conversations, you know, out in the world, maybe with their kids, maybe with their kids' teachers, and it will become um, something where there's more light shed on it because I think it's, I think it's really incredibly important. And um, I think that if we want there to be change, then we need to start getting in this conversation. Yeah, consciousness raising, right? I think women have already and are probably much further along in becoming much more aware and conscious of gender and the harmful scripting. Men and masculinity, I think, is behind. And we need a parallel awareness and consciousness around gender and masculinity and what that really means and what's the harm that's happening. And it helps explain a lot of the problems we see in the world today. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Thank you for, for, you know, not just taking the time to talk with us today, but for all of the work that you've done to shed some light on this, this issue that has been in the dark. It's an honor. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you both. And to our listeners, as always, we appreciate you. We, uh, we send you all of our best and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Dwayne and Marnie in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Dwayne in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.